We're going to start at the tail end of Ezra chapter 2. For those who were here a few weeks ago when we talked about the list of names in Ezra 2, I left out the last couple of verses of the chapter, and I'm going to incorporate that in today's sermon text. Acts chapter 2, excuse me, Ezra chapter 2, that was a long time ago, we were in Acts. Ezra chapter 2, and we'll start in chapter 2, verse 68, and I'm going to read last week's text as well as this week's text, and we will read all of chapter 3. So again, this is the word of the Lord, Ezra chapter 2, starting in verse 68. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first Day to the seventh, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons... And brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' homes, fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the shout of the joyful shout, the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's bow our heads together. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless our time again here in Ezra, in maybe a more remote part of your word than we often study, but we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, and I pray that even now we would see the profit that is to be found in this text. And I pray you'd be glorified now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've got four points today. Some of these I'll move through more rapidly than others for the sake of time, but I'll go ahead and give you the four right now. And this has to do with the rekindling of worship. I've titled the sermon, Worship Rekindled, Laying the Foundation of the Temple. So it's about worship being rekindled. And uh, it, it reminded me a little bit, Scott mentioned it too, about the Ephesians losing their first love, and we need to get that love rekindled. Well, here, uh, Israel had lost some of its love, perhaps, in exile, and now they're rekindling that flame of worship in this chapter, and it's an exciting chapter. So here are the four points. Number one, what, what do they do in the rekindling of worship? Number one, they gave generously. Number two, they worked in unity. Number three, they praised joyfully. And number four, with a bit of a contrast, some wept loudly. So one more time, they gave generously, they worked in unity, they praised joyfully, some wept loudly. Let's begin with the generosity of the people. Look with me back in chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. I'm going to reread as we go here. So chapter 2, verse 68, this is just as the people have come back, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Well, it is amazing that we can give to the Lord in many different ways. You may have heard of giving treasure, time, and talent, the three T's there. It's easy to remember. Giving treasure, time, and talent, and the people here are giving all of those things. My goodness. When we say that they're giving time, it's not like they carved out a couple hours on a Saturday afternoon to help rebuild the temple. <laughs> These people gave the rest of their lives. They made a four-month journey from a secure place in Babylon where they, many of them had some economic security and perhaps a job for the last 50, 70 years. They're relinquishing that. They're going all the way back home and they're starting over. They are giving their lives to the work of the Lord. Now, I know that the way we give our lives to the Lord is going to look different. Some of us are going to be called to the mission field. For some of us in this room, no doubt, the day will come where we leave all that we know here and we move to another part of the world, perhaps to the 1040 window where the most unreached group of people live in the world, and we may give our lives in a very dangerous place for the sake of the gospel. And that is absolutely glorious and something we should consider for our own selves. We should always ask that question, is that where the Lord would have me go or my family go or whatever it may be? But for many of us, giving our lives to the Lord is going to just as much involve our time, but it may not look quite the same. The question is, am I willing truly to commit my time, my talent, my treasure to the work and service of the Lord for His glory, not for my own? You know, as, as, the, um, as the tabernacle was built, it says people gave, Exodus 35, 29, the Lord moved on them. Their hearts, it says whoever's heart was moved, they would give a freewill offering to the Lord to contribute to the tabernacle. With Solomon's temple, 1 Chronicles 29, 6, then the leaders of the father's houses made freewill offerings, and it lists all that they gave to construct that amazing temple that Solomon built. Well, here with the second temple, although much less financially available for the people and much fewer people, you know, Solomon had 150,000 people helping him, they've got far less than that here, less than 50,000, 
but they give what they have. And that's what God asks. Look at verse 68, says free will offering. Verse 69, look at this, says according to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work. You know the widow might, the widow's might. We know that story, right? This woman who has virtually nothing left to give gives all to the work of the Lord. And Jesus looks at that woman and says, most people are giving out of their wealth, but she, out of the little she has to live on, gave all that she had. She really has put more into the treasury than everyone else. How God evaluates generosity is very different from how the world evaluates generosity. In fact, if I could be honest, even in the church, we tend to evaluate things like the world. What do we tend to think? The person with the biggest check, that's the big giver, right? We, we want, we and and this, is, this, is, this is wicked thinking, but there's this part of us that says, okay, I want, want that person with a lot of income. They can give something to something. No, no, no. The Lord says, according to our ability, we are to give. Some of us in this room financially, we just don't have a lot of income. Maybe right now financially things are kind of tight for you and for your family or for you personally, and you don't have tons of excess income. You don't have some large savings account. You don't have lots of investments to look forward to. You're not running perhaps some successful business. Things are more tight. I want you to know the Lord sees, we've been talking about that in Revelation, the Lord sees, I know your works. The Lord sees and he knows when a humble gift is given, when there's little to give and yet it is given freely and joyfully for the work of the Lord. I mean, I could tell you stories, I won't name names, it would embarrass people, but I, I know people in this room who don't have tons of finances, who consistently give little gifts to other people in a act of kindness and love to the Lord. I tell you, the Lord keeps track of those things. We are not called to give necessarily a big amount as the world sees it, but we are to give according to our ability. That's what the free will offering was. It was just, I want to give freely. I just want to give. There's no commandment right now. It's a free will offering. God hasn't even commanded this. I just want to contribute to the work of the Lord. And as Jesus said, Matthew 6, where we were recently, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. If we invest even with the little that we have in the work of the Lord, we will find our heart more tied to the work of the Lord because where our treasure goes, our heart soon follows. In the New Testament, by the way, just so you know, the people gave about 1,133 pounds of gold and about 6,250 pounds of silver, this humble group. In the New Testament, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 16, it's an amazing little text, little glimpse into their Sunday gatherings. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you are also to do. Now listen, on the first day of every week, that's Sunday, the day they gathered, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. So there needs to just be a regular sense in which we are regularly committing to be generous to the work of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, each one should give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We also, of course, give our time, our talents, but we'll move on here. Have you noticed something about the temples as they're built in the Bible? This is an amazing little theme of biblical theology that runs through the Bible. Have you noticed God builds His temples and His dwelling places with the plunder from His enemies? It's an interesting theme. It runs through the whole Bible. So with the tabernacle built in the wilderness in Exodus, with Moses sort of overseeing that, you know where the gold came from? 
It came from the plundering of the Egyptians, right? In Exodus 12, as they left, God saw to it that when the people asked, the Egyptians gave gold and precious stones to the people, and guess what the temple was made out? It was made out of the gold that God uh, brought about through the plundering of the Egyptians. How about Solomon's temple? You know, First and Second Chronicles focuses on this interesting theme. It's not in the book of Samuel. But in First Chronicles, it talks about how David, as he was advanced in age, he knew he was not going to build the temple. Remember, he was a man of war. He was not fit to build the temple. We need a man of peace, Solomon, to build the temple. So what does David do? Chronicles talks about how he spent the later years of his life as king, storing up wealth from the plunder of the enemies of God's people to prepare Solomon so that when Solomon took the throne, he would have a vast amount of wealth and gold and silver and precious stones to erect this amazing temple to the Lord. God's glory is somehow seen in his triumph over the enemies, taking the plunder and turning it around to serve his own glory. Well, we see it again in our text today. Look at uh, Ezra chapter 3 and look at verse 7. Ezra 3 verse 7, so they, it says this, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Where's the money coming from to do this amazing work? By the way, it's a technical footnote. This is almost exactly what Solomon did. Just let me read the quote. Uh, from the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 2.16, we will cut whatever timber you need from Lebanon and bring it to you in rafts by the sea of Joppa, which was a port city, so that you may bring it to Jerusalem. This verse is showing that they reconstructed this temple just like Solomon had done it originally. The same towns and the same way of moving lumber is mentioned. It's an echo back to Solomon, but let's, let's not miss the main point. Who is paying to get tons of trees cut down in the Lebanon area, floated on rafts, way down on the Mediterranean, brought to Joppa, and then transported from Joppa inland, I don't know how many miles I'd have to look, but a good many miles, uh, to Jerusalem. Who's paying for that? A pagan king. Do we once again see God overturning the, the riches of a pagan nation and using their riches to build His temple? Yes. But that's not the most exciting example of that in the Bible. The most exciting example is you. You know what the New Testament teaches about how Jesus is building His new covenant temple. We are the living stones, 1 Peter 2, being built together into a holy temple for the Lord where His Spirit will dwell. You know what we're told? We're told that Jesus, when He was led on high, led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. What did Jesus do? When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, He defeated the kingdom of darkness, and all of us are the plunder from Satan's kingdom. We were dead in sin. We were following the text Scott just read, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work, and the sons of disobedience. We were all like, uh, like all, all creation. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what did God do? He chose in His grace to regenerate and bring to faith you. And now God is building His temple with you, the plunder of Satan's kingdom. God always builds His temple with the plunder from the enemy's kingdom. And you yourself are part of the gold, the costly stones that He has taken away from Satan's domain and He has redeemed in the blood of Christ. And now you yourself are part of the gold temple. When you, what do you see at the end of the Bible? That you see a bride coming down out of heaven. The bride is you, right? God's people dressed like a bride for a bridegroom. And it's, it's the new creation. And what do you have? You have costless rubies and gold and jewels and the 12 foundation stones of the apostles and the, 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 the 12 tribes of Israel. God's people are that very thing. God is building His new creation temple out of the plunder of Satan's kingdom. And it says at the end of the Bible 
that by the, by the light of the new Jerusalem will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So let's move to point number two. Point number one, they gave generously time, treasure, and talent. Number two, they worked as one. They worked as one. Look at this. Chapter 3, verse 1, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man, literally, as one man to Jerusalem. Are the people of God united in the purpose of God right now? Do you hear about division? No. Do you hear about people gossiping about each other and causing slandering and causing division? No. Do you hear about grudges and harshness and bitterness between the people? No. What do you hear? They gathered to Jerusalem as one man, united in purpose, united in motive. There was no selfish ambition that was taking over at this point. Now, I will warn you, that will happen to some degree later, sadly. But at this moment, there's a union of purpose and a union of motive. There is no self-centered ambition. There's no one-upmanship. There's no, I'm better than you. Look how much more I gave. Look how much more talented I am. Look how much I've contributed to the construction project. Hey, I'm a priest and you're not. All this kind of nonsense. No, the people work as one man, like the body of Christ. One man, right? The, The eye cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. The hand cannot say, I have no need of the ear. And on and on, we all need one another. And they come as one man to Jerusalem. Now, You can't see this in most translations, but the word one right there is the same exact Hebrew word that is used a few verses later in verse 9. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel, his sons, the sons of Judah, the ESV says together. That's the word as one, same Hebrew word, as one. Uh, Together, they supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. They are coming together. And they've got hard work to do, but right now there's not a mark of complaining, and there's a lot they could try to complain about. They aren't doing that. They are united in goal and in motive. You know these words, but Philippians 2, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why does Paul write that to a great church like the Philippian church? This is a great church in the Bible a wonderful, godly church who supported Paul again and again in his missionary work. Why would he say that? Just a few chapters later, tell Euodia and Syntyche to stop uh, having this sort of feud together, these two ladies in the church. Tell them to be united in the gospel. What's happening? Even in a godly church that gets its own letter in the New Testament and gets praised by Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a church you want to be a part of, okay? Founded by Paul. Even this church struggled with what? One-upmanship contention, quarrelsomeness, selfish ambition in the church of Christ, that we would want to let our skills and our abilities be displayed as superior to someone else is a real temptation in healthy churches. It is. And and here's what we see here. As one man, we need to be united in purpose. It's not about who gets the glory. I heard, was an old quote you may have heard, 
It's amazing what people could get done if they're not worried about who gets the credit. Think about what we could get done if we were not concerned about who gets the credit. We should not look mainly after our own interests, but the interests of others. We should be caught up in helping people, not angling to get attention for ourselves. I mean, think about it. The same exact act of service. I mean, think of an act of service you've been involved with with our church. It could be serving on the stage. It could be serving in a Bible study. It could be helping with food. It could be helping host in a home. It could be caring for children in the nursery. It could be helping teach Sunday school. It could be just having conversations and loving each other after the service. There's a thousand ways that you've served in this church, all of you in in this room. Don't you know that the same act of service externally can be done for two very different reasons internally? And don't you know at times when you're doing it, you think at least largely to truly honor the Lord? And then don't you know the times where you know the carnal frame of mind is taking over and the carnal motives are taking over and suddenly you're thinking right now, even though you're saying you're helping other people, you can feel it within you. Am I getting the recognition that I deserve or that I think I deserve in this moment? And we need to be on guard because no matter what church we're a part of, that is going to be a danger and a temptation everywhere that we must resist. And in this moment, the people seem to do a good job resisting that temptation. Let me read verse 8. Now, in the second year, after, the coming to the, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. Now, couple things here. Number one, why the second year? Because we were just back earlier. It was the seventh month of the first year. Now we've jumped ahead about half a year. What happened to those six months? Hard to know for sure, but probably they were waiting for all that timber to come down to where they were. This probably took six months or so to get all that timber from Lebanon floating down on the rafts and then transported to where they needed. So there was a delay, but once everything's in place, they get right to work. And here's what's amazing. It says they made a beginning. They made a beginning. We can apply this to all kinds of things in life. Maybe you're starting college for the first time. You know, it's your first semester in college this fall, and you're going to make a beginning. And maybe it's a marriage. You just got married. Maybe, you're, uh, maybe you just had your first child. You make a beginning. Maybe you started a business. Whatever it may be, you make a beginning. And then there's the question, will there be not just the creation, but the cultivation of what has happened? Will there be the care and love and upkeep of the thing that the Lord has provided? Having children and then raising them faithfully over time in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Make a beginning, yes, by God's glory, but then persevere in it till the end. How many people, we talked about this Thursday night, how many people have made a beginning in the Christian life but have not made a proper and faithful ending to their Christian life? How many people start off with something genuinely good, but it's just tiring It's hard to live a godly life, even imperfectly. It's hard to get up and continue on the the road of holiness. There are temptations around us always. Yes, make a good beginning, but pray pray for God's grace that we make a good continuance and that we make a good ending, that we are faithful and endure to the end, and that we will see there are struggles that will come in the coming chapters. But all hands are on deck. In verse 8, it says, all who had come from Jerusalem were at work. Everybody was at work. Let me say here, not just the Levites and the priests were at work. Yes, the priests, 20 and older, oversaw the work. That's true. 
But who was doing the work? All, it says right here, all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. I know we, we talk about this a lot at our church. Ministry is for Christians. If you're a Christian, you're in the ministry, okay? Ephesians chapter 4, God is given, I just quoted it, Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. He gave the apostles and prophets. We believe those are the foundation stones of the church that are in God's word. And then he gave the evangelists and the pastors and teachers to not do the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we obtain maturity, mature manhood in Christ. So who is called to the work of building God's church in this room? Everyone who names the name of Christ. And the members of North Avenue Church in particular have a responsibility that we are held accountable for one another, that we love one another well. Now, I don't want to unnecessarily guilt someone because I think there's a way to manipulate or unnecessarily guilt somebody. I'm not going to do that. At least I don't want to do that right now. I understand that there are many reasons for why certain things are the way they are. But I, I want to ask you, are you as involved relationally in this body as you think you should be before the Lord. I understand that you just had a baby, your children are sick. I understand there's all kinds of reasons. You might have physical health issues right now. There's all kinds of reasons why you might not be as available as you are at other seasons of life. But let me ask you this before your conscience and before the Lord. Are you as involved in the one another commandments? Love one another, forgive one another, be care for one another. Are you as involved in the body here in this church as the Lord would have you? Or are there areas where, like Ephesians says, we've, we've backed away from our first love? Are there areas where we say, you know what, I probably should be more involved than I am. I should probably make some more phone calls to people than I should. Get more coffee with more people than I have. Maybe attend a Bible study if I haven't, or go to this or that event that I, that I have neglected. Just before the Lord in your conscience, I'm not here to judge the individual. I just want to say, ask before God, are you as involved relationally here in this body as the Lord would have you be? And are there changes that need to be made? All right, let's move to point number three. This is verses 10 and 11. They praised joyfully. So again, they gave generously. They worked in unity. And now they praised joyfully. Let me read for us verses 10 and 11. This is a wonderful, wonderful section. Verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Now, I'm just going to stop mid-verse. In some regards, and you'll see why there was weeping in a minute, in some regards, from one perspective, this is a pathetic little moment, from, in one perspective. Solomon's temple was like a wonder of the ancient world. And now here they are with their little material, these little newly released exiles with very humble beginnings. All they're doing right now is trying to clear the foundation and redo. Probably the foundation was messed up from the fire when they burned it. Maybe there's burned and cracked foundation stones. Perhaps with the freezing and the weather, some of the foundation stones have shifted. So they've got to maybe put some new stones in and repair the old stones. And they've got to fix this thing up. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take some work. But when they're done with the foundation, it frankly looks pathetic compared to what was there before. Solomon's temple. Uh, this is like, you know... This is like you know, knocking the White House down and you just lay the foundation, right? It's like, like you knock over some glorious building you've seen and you just kind of lay the humble little foundation stones. You see why there was weeping, right? And also celebrating. But I want to focus on the celebrating despite this humble beginning. Because with the eyes of faith, 
these humble people saw God was really at work in this moment. And I want you to know, in your life, in the humble little beginnings that are made, maybe a new godly habit is being formed in your life right now by God. And it may not look glamorous. It's not going to be written down in some Christian biography one day. It's not going to be world famous like, wow, this is like George Mueller's prayer life or something like that. It may not catch the, the, the notice of history. But a godly habit that you are developing in your life by God's grace right now is a small but wonderful beginning of something, and it is to be an object of praise to God, thanksgiving to God. And if you see that in one another, if we see godliness and growth in one another, we should be not those who neglect it, act like it's nothing. We should praise and thank God. Wow, I really see growth in this area in your life. Tell the person and praise God for even small beginnings because God is at work in the little days as well as in the big days. So here, verse 10 again. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I want to be more like those people. When a small beginning of true godliness takes place, it is a miracle of God. It is a mark of God's goodness and faithfulness and kindness and I want to fan it into flame, and I want to celebrate. I want to say, thank you, Lord, for your goodness. You know, steadfast love. Very well-known Hebrew word, hesed. That word means God's commitment to keep His covenant with His people. God doesn't break His promises. And this little beginning is a token that God is going to do exactly what He said He would do. You say, where did God say that? Listen to this. Remember... A, few, a month or so ago, we saw in Isaiah, uh, year 700 BC, he predicted Cyrus by name. Remember that? Cyrus by name. But do you remember what he predicted about Cyrus in 700 BC, over, uh, well over 100 years before this, 150 years? Listen, Isaiah 44, 28. God who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. The foundation being relayed of the temple was predicted through Isaiah by God, instigated by Cyrus, over 150 years before it happened. And now the people recognize God is keeping His word. So what do they do? They bring out the band. They bring out the cymbals. They bring out the trumpets. They bring out the musical instruments because it is time to praise God because God has kept his word again. His hesed, his steadfast, covenant-keeping love once again comes true. God never lies. God never breaks his word. God is always faithful. We are often faithless. God is always righteous, always good. Let's praise the Lord. And this is a genuine song of joy. You know, God gave us song, singing, because words can't do what songs were designed by God to do. I mean, I, I'm a words guy. You don't want to hear me sing. There was one time my microphone got left on when the, during the singing. There's a recording of it. Ian sent it to me. He was going to blackmail me for the rest of my life. It was truly horrifying. My wife and I laughed for like 30 minutes. And then I believe Ian deleted it. At least that's what he told me. 
if you pay him the right amount of money, he may find it again, is all I'm saying, okay? So I'm not the singing person. I mean, I sing, but you don't want to have the microphone on when I'm singing. I'm not the singing person. I'm the speaking person, right? I'm, all, I'm, I'm talking. But let, let me say something in favor of the singing part of our worship services. I hope you are stirred as we hear God's Word, and even as I'm preaching, I hope you're stirred. But there's something about how God wired us as people, body and soul, and you know, this is so obvious, you know this, but there's something about song and the way lyrics are composed when they are biblical and they are well-written that they stir our affections in a way that God designed. And they are meant to both express affection for the Lord and to stir further affection for the Lord. And so the Word of God is almost like laying down the wood to say, here's what we should be worshiping God about, and I hope you're stirred while we're laying the wood. But then when we sing these truths, I hope the fire comes down. I hope that there is an ignition of the truths that we preach on and that your affections are, are, are burst into flame, that there's a, there's a deep love and, and delight in God that is expressed through song. And the people don't speak about God here. They sing about God's covenant faithfulness. Let me read it again. These are so good. One more time, verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Again, what's so moving to me is how humble this moment is, and yet how much they are rejoicing in God's goodness at the same time. Verse 12 and 13, here's my last point of this message. Some wept loudly. It's a bit of a contrast to the other points. Some wept loudly. Verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, where the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away." Now, I want to be careful here. The text is not overly clear about what to say about this, so I don't want to overplay my hand and go beyond the text, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll offer you that perhaps these are guesses I have. I don't know that the text says it, but I'm going to give you sort of two thoughts here, and you can test it if you think this is what the text is getting at. Number one would be this, okay? Number one, and this is not just for older people, although that's what the text is referring to. It refers to all Christians can do this. There can be a tendency to, have the, to, have a, to glorify what God did in the past and to be so caught up in the good old days of what God did 30 years ago that we fail to support and rejoice in what God's doing right here and now. And it's not wrong to look back with nostalgia and thankfulness and gratitude for what God did. Uh, perhaps it's something you were a part of 30 or 40 years ago. Praise God. Don't ever forget it. But let us not let the good old days drown out what God is doing now to the degree that the people who are so caught in the past start downplaying the, the moment that God is at work in the present and start saying, this is nothing compared to what was here 70 years ago. This is a joke compared to what Solomon's temple, this is never going to compare to Solomon's temple and they're weeping and wailing. I think that is a wet blanket in this moment on the people's rejoicing 
Because they, the, the older folks, yes, there's a place for sorrow, but there should also be a place to support the good that God is doing right now. And here's the second thing I think may be going on right here. In other words, I think some of that sorrow should have been dealt with privately before the Lord and not necessarily vented in front of everyone. I think it could really be a discouragement to some. But the second thing I think here is this. The grief that they're seeing is attached to something legitimate, which is the effects of sin. Solomon's temple would still be standing in this scene right now, covered in gold and costly jewels. It would still be the glory of the earth where God's Shekinah glory, the the, the glory of Yahweh dwelt in the Holy of Holies. That would all still be happening, and the nations would be flocking to Jerusalem right now to hear the law of God and to delight in the God of Israel and to pray in the court of the Gentiles for, for God's glory to come. That would all be happening. Why is the place in shambles, even the foundation stone in disrepair? Because of sin. And as, as we draw near to the Lord's table, let us remember this. Sin always leads to destruction. It never promotes true holiness, true happiness, or true uh, joy in life. It always gives a cheap imitation that leaves us empty in the end. And what did sin, sin lead to? It led to the devastation of God's home, his house there in, in Israel, the, the temple. Of course, God says, heaven cannot even contain me. The earth is my footstool. But in a sense, it was where God's glory dwelt. God's glory left. It was destroyed all because of the work of sin. Let me, let me turn, turn with me here as we come near an end to John chapter 2 in your New Testament. You can leave Ezra, John chapter 2. The destruction of the temple led to legitimate grief at the effects of sin for God's people, on God's people. Now you remember this, Jesus gets into the, this temple after it's been fully refurbished by Herod. The wicked king. Let's just read part of it here. John 2.13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now listen very carefully, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Our sin did not simply cause the destruction of a physical temple in Jerusalem. Our sin, your sin, if you know the Lord, your personal sin, my sin against God, caused the destruction of the ultimate temple, Jesus himself. His body was the place where God dwelt. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when Jesus came, our sin brought about the destruction of the temple of His body, and it was raised back up, rebuilt in three days. On that resurrection Sunday morning, He rose from the dead triumphant, and now He offers full and free forgiveness so that we can both celebrate and grieve at the foot of the cross. 
And as we come to the Lord's table, this table today is not for those who do not know Jesus. If you do not know Jesus, we are thrilled that you are here, but we would ask you to refrain from partaking of these elements, rather that you would talk to the Lord and deal with the Lord right here, right now, that you would confess sin, turn and trust in Christ, and accept the free and full forgiveness that He offers, and we would love to talk to you about that. But if you know the Lord, and you're not walking in unrepentant sin at this moment, then we would ask that you come forward. When I'm done praying, you may come forward, partake of these elements, come forward with repentance and grief over the destruction of the temple of Christ's body because of our sin, but then return to your seat celebrating the faithfulness of God, His covenant-keeping love, which was ultimately displayed through the destruction and rebuilding of the temple of the body of Jesus for us. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we are encouraged and I think exhorted, maybe chastened by what we see in this text today. Lord, I pray for any of us right now who are not giving generously according to what we have. I don't mean to this church per se. I just mean giving in in general, generously. If we are holding back when we should be more free in our giving, convict us as these people give free will offerings of their gold and silver for the work of the temple. Show us how our money can be used to build your temple, your, your church throughout the world. God, if we are walking in disunity with a brother or sister in this room, help that to be burning in our conscience. Help us to go if we need to and make that right. At the very least, let us repent of it in your presence and to forgive what needs to be forgiven and to begin to walk in humility, one purpose, one motive. God, help us in a moment to praise you joyfully for your covenant faithfulness to us, your steadfast love demonstrated ultimately in the giving of your Son, just as you promised. And God, I pray when appropriate that we would weep over the destruction of that Christ experienced on the cross as the temple of His body was destroyed and then rebuilt on the third day, and I pray that we would rejoice in that resurrection hope, that even now as we come forward for these elements, that we would be grieved over our sin and we would be secure in our hope in the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.